My little brother's friends have been camped out at our place for two days straight. Three. It's because of the Xfinity 10G network. Internet that can handle a house full of screens at once, with like basically no interruptions. And it's only getting faster. When I was their age, internet like this was a pipe dream. You sound like my grandpa. Please go home. Introducing the next generation 10G network, only from Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. This is the Read to Lead podcast, episode 337. One of the things that I say in the book pretty clearly is it's not about getting our people to change. It is about getting our people to want to change. Hey there. Hope you're doing well. I'm Jeff, and this is the Read to Lead podcast. It's the podcast dedicated to your personal and professional growth. And this podcast exists for one main reason. And that reason is I believe that if you desire to achieve true success in your business and in your life, then intentional and consistent reading is a must. We glean key insights and ideas from some of today's most successful and inspiring authors, and we do that through conversations with the authors themselves about their recent book. Today's guest and author is a guy by the name of Al Como. That's C-O-M-E-A-U-X. He's author of Change the Management, Why We as Leaders Need to Change for the Change to Last. I'll be asking Al to share about some of the enemies of change. There are six total that he's identified. The problem with change by decree, how you can become an ally of change, and lots more. There's a reason, Al says, that two-thirds of organizational change initiatives are unsuccessful and an estimated $2 trillion is wasted on change every single year. Change efforts are largely one-dimensional. Now the book, Change the Management, brings a second dimension to the conversation. Be sure and stick around until the end of our chat when I'll share how to get a free chapter from Al's new book. He's a former executive at Travelocity, GE, and American Airlines, a decorated corporate pioneer and global authority on change from inside organizations. His career championing change and his 20-year journey researching why so many change efforts fail and what's needed for success make him one of the world's most forward thinkers on what leaders must do and how they must think to succeed at change. In 2019, Al founded Primed for Change, a disruptive new project created to prepare leaders to take organizations successfully through change. And that's exactly what he's here to help us do today. And helping him in that endeavor is the new book he wrote. It came out in May. It's called Change the Management, Why We as Leaders Must Change for the Change to Last. His name is Al Como. Al, welcome to the Read to Lead podcast. I'm excited to have you here. Thanks. It's really exciting to be here. Exciting to talk about books and leadership. That's a fun topic. Certainly. And I need to give a quick shout out to uh, my friend uh, Scott Mater of the Inspired Stewardship podcast who made the introduction. And so, Scott, if you're listening, thank you, because uh, I've really enjoyed Al's book. Well, Al, let's uh, begin at the beginning. Uh, let's start with chapter one and address this this idea of whose problem change is. And, and we need to start there because we often get that one wrong, don't we? Yeah. You know, the the thing that's interesting about change, and I started looking at this after a really bad change that I was part of mm. uh, more than 20 years ago. And, and it's been a 20 year journey for me to understand why some people win at change and others lose at change. In fact, most people lose at change. And ultimately, what I came to understand after looking at lots of things 
is that the problem is ours as leaders. It's, it's it's not in our stars. It's not in our strategy. It's not in our spreadsheets. It's not in our underlings. It's in ourselves and in the way we think about the change that we need to lead and how we think we need to lead it. So ultimately, uh, you know, as I say in the book, we are the enemies of change. And I say it rather boldly because I, I hope people will take away the fact and, and recognize it and internalize it because I have looked at countless change efforts and I've seen time and again the difference between the winners and losers at change. And when I say winners at change versus losers at change, I look for lasting change. Those who were able to get people to comply, that's not really a change. That's just a compliance the uh, the old ways seep back in. So I looked at it first and I said, could it be strategy? Could it be that the, the people who had the lasting change, those who won a change, had a better understanding of their strategy, had a better understanding of how the threat or the opportunity was hitting their strategy and were, were able to better strategize because of that. Uh, and, and there really wasn't that much of a difference. And, and so I looked at, at execution. Were the people who tried to execute, were they good at project management and did they have the tools and the capabilities and those sorts of things to, to, to move forward? And really, I didn't see it. I didn't, you know, there were great people at the winning companies and at the losing companies. Mm. Ultimately, what I was able to recognize and what because I heard it so often was that the leader mindset was was off. And I think we'll talk about that when we talk about future chapters here in a few seconds. But suffice it to say, I think the leaders didn't even recognize that it was theirs to do, theirs to be so involved. Mm. Because we get to a, a place in leadership, and I've spent the last 20 years, uh, while I was also looking at change, sitting on leadership teams, working on leadership teams, executive teams at large divisions and at the tops of large companies, and seeing the behavior while I was studying the behavior elsewhere and seeing how people in our organizations reacted to certain behaviors by leaders. And uh, I was able to sort of parse this out that it really is we, it is we, not they, who have the most opportunity to make the change work or not work. And it has to do with how we think about it, not in what we do, mm. because how we think about it drives what we ultimately do. Mm. Well, Al has divided his book into two parts. Part two, we'll get to obviously in a little bit, how to become the allies of change. And we'll talk about this reorientation between pulling versus pushing. Uh, but first, I want to dive a little deeper into uh, part one, where the remainder of, of this uh, section of the book, chapters two through seven, each chapter touches on one of Al's enemies uh, of change. And Al, I'd like to, to touch on each of these if we can, starting with the topic of our own uh, cognitive dissonance. Yeah, you know, cognitive dissonance is a, a fancy term for the psychological discomfort <laughs> we get when a value of ours or belief we hold is somehow challenged or countered. So millions of people every night who are left of center avoid Fox News like the plague. Millions of people every night who are right of center avoid MSNBC. Similarly, we don't like our values to be challenged or countered. And so everyone in our organization is going to suffer from cognitive dissonance during a change. As employees, we have this belief, actually, all of us have this belief, we believe and value something called the way we've always done it, right? So the way we've always done it is we as leaders do things a certain way. We, we hand down the change and then expect others to take it. 
we as employees, you know, like the way we've always done it. It's what got us here. It's what made us successful. So when we tell our people that the way we've always done it is not the way we're going to do it, <laughs> well, they they may smile and nod. They may even repeat back to us what we're saying. But inside, they want to throw things at us. They, <laughs> they want to curl up into the fetal position. And so we have to understand what they're going through, but we have to also understand that we're going through it too. So we as leaders, when we find out from my book or someone else telling them that we may be at fault here, that we maybe need to think about things differently, we ourselves get cognitive dissonance about that and don't want to hear this new counter or challenge to this belief we have that now that we're leaders, we don't need to get our hands dirty in, in the change. In the book, I talk about a story that talks about our people's cognitive dissonance. I was at Travelocity and we had a, a $1 fare to Fiji. We woke up one day to find out that we had this $1 fare to Fiji. And Oops. What to do, right? It wasn't obviously something we wanted to have. It wasn't a fare sale that we were doing. And <laughs> it wasn't the airline's fault. It was our fault. And the easiest way to solve this problem was what the journalists were saying, which is, hey, these people knew that this was a mistaken fare. They should have known that, you know, it was a mistaken fare. And it was nice and fun to think about, but probably not a, something that they should expect Travelocity to do anything about. Mm. Well, the, the problem was we were, or the, the opportunity was, we were right in the middle of a massive change at Travelocity because we hadn't differentiated ourselves. We'd grown from the, the 33 largest travel agency in the country to the fifth largest in five years. So mm. all that growth, we'd th basically thrown things together as fast as we could and hadn't spent as much time trying to find a way to differentiate ourselves. And we became a price shopping engine like everyone else. Mm. And we were three seconds away from our nearest competitor. So we had to differentiate ourselves and decided that we would focus on something called customer championship. And we would be the champions of the customers. And the problem with that, after 18 months and millions of dollars of investment, was that our people weren't with us. One of the things that is different about the mindset of the leaders who wanted change and the mindset of leaders who, who didn't get lasting change, mm. they understood better that if our people don't change, there is no change. And so our people had heard from their leaders in the call centers that, oh, you know, we'll, we'll invest more in our customer service, we promise. And they'd heard this before, but we had a new, you know, we were trying to change things and we were sincerely trying to do that. But they just, they didn't buy it. Plus it was a change on their part. They had cognitive dissonance. How do you overcome this, right? How do you overcome this cognitive dissonance problem that either you as leaders have or that we as employees may have? Well, here we were two weeks before we were about to launch a, a new customer first guarantee. And we had a $1 fare to Fiji. And our people weren't necessarily buying this idea that we were serious about truly lasting, a lasting investment in our customers. So we wake up with a $1 fare to Fiji and easily we can rationalize it away. We can simply say, well, you know, it was a mistake, but our people were watching us. And so Michelle Pelusa, our CEO, one of the brightest people I've worked with, Michelle recognized that she had a Wall Street, she had a board of directors, she had a quarter to make, but she also had everyone in the, on her team watching her. And she knew that if she rationalized this away, we would have cognitive dissonance. People would be saying, there, that's the excuse. I don't have to do this because they're not serious about this. We're looking for a reason to solve our cognitive dissonance. And this would have mm. given our people a very good way to do that.
So Michelle went out to the message board where people had been chatting. This is 2005 timeframe when they before social media. And she went out there and said, if you bought a $1 fare to Fiji, have a great trip. <laughs> and by the way, we've also got great hotel deals for you and great things to do in Fiji for less. We're giving you more reason to go because you see Michelle Peluso, who knew she couldn't back down, she had to personify this idea of customer championship, which is what we were trying to differentiate ourselves with. She realized that she she couldn't rationalize it away or it would be all lost. It would fizzle out eventually. So she went and did a massive marketing deal with the Fijian Hotel Association, the Fijian Tourism Authority, in order to cover the cost of the $1 fare to Fiji, given that this was going to be a boon in publicity to Fiji. But that's what someone who knows they have to overcome the cognitive dissonance in their organization. They have to model the change themselves. And that's how someone who understands these things thinks and acts. Um, it is a mindset that says we have to model this change. We have to get involved and, and show people the way or they will decide for themselves how they want to decide. And, and by the way, 15 years later, until the pandemic, as I was writing the book, I looked out there and the, the customer first guarantee 15 years later was still the chief differentiator at Travelocity, mm. which is lasting change. I mean, Michelle hasn't been CEO there in 10 or 12 years. There have been, I don't know how many CEOs since her, the company's been sold, but this idea caught on. It did provide a, a differentiator and it was a lasting change. And so that's the kind of mentality that we have to have. We have to come up with a way, mm. even when it seems hopeless. Well said. Uh, and that was one of my favorite stories uh, in the book, too. It's not what you expected to happen, but uh, certainly was the, the right decision uh, to make. Yeah. I'm going to skip around here a little bit. Uh, not surprisingly, Al, inertia is on your list, uh, the number three enemy of change. Mm -hmm. uh, how does this one tend to, to make itself known? And, and maybe what are some of the ways we can, we can combat inertia? as leaders? Yeah. So we find ourselves sometimes at an offsite or in a conference room and we all realize, ah, oh, we're going to have to change. <laughs> we're going to have to change things. And then something happens. And in, in, in my book, I tell the story of, a, of a, a made up executive team who gets on the change train and then a fire alarm happens in their offices. Down in the parking lot, they get hit up by everybody who has all these now, now, now questions that they need to answer. And a couple of weeks later, they get back and they've got new data that tells them that the numbers aren't as bad. Maybe they don't have to change and they sort of forget it. So we let things get in the way of the power that we have to have to push change through. And I, I'm going to tell you later that we don't want to push the change onto people, but we have to lead the change with our own power, mm. with our own momentum. And so there are a bunch of different things that we have to look out for that can get in the way of change. First is, again, our own cognitive dissonance. We may not want the change or want to do the work, the hard, hard work that's going to take to do this change. We've got lots on our plate. Adding something as hard as a change can be something that we might resist, and we might resist it for quite a while until the data are so certain that we have to do it. So we, we may allow things to get in the way. We may lack alignment amongst ourselves. We'll talk about that probably later. I think that was a favorite chapter of yours when we mm -hmm. talked about how we get alignment. We lose support amongst ourselves as leaders, and we lose momentum uh, because of that. And we allow new data, perhaps, to get in the way. Other projects get in our way. So we have to we have to recognize we're either going to go for this change or we're not. Mm -hmm. And if we're going to go for this change, we have to look for the things that are go going to get in the way and call them out and realize 
that we are suffering from them. There are a few ways to sort of help ourselves overcome this. First is in our own personal way and how we do things like time management, things like thinking. I've had a number of bosses who've talked about the idea of, I need time to think, but they never actually got the time to think. They always talked about how they needed it. But we have to, we have to figure out how to take a Thursday off. I knew a CEO who took Thursdays off once a month to read, and that was what he did. Now, he was a CEO. He didn't have as many people pulling on him. Believe it or not, you think that that he probably did, but no, he could you know mark a day on his calendar once a month to read. And that was reflection time. And that was time to mm. sort of think. And th- th- there are books uh, like uh, Getting Things Done that help us with our own personal time management. The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People has a great time management capability where we learn to stop doing the non-urgent, non-important, or even the non-urgent uh, important things mm. or, or the urgent non-important things. And what we want to do really are the important things that aren't urgent. Because the more we do to build relationships, the more we do to grow our people so they can take some of our urgent work, the more we do those sorts of things, the more time we have to push, to lead, to lead things forward. And we want to lead things forward. We want to do the kind of work that we need to do to make the change happen because change is a very hard thing. And so we let inertia get in our, in our way. And so the, the other thing that we may come across, by the way, is change fatigue. Sometimes some companies report that there are as much as one massive change a year, two changes every three years. And that's a lot of change for people to digest. <laughs> So we have to overcome that with our own Mm. uh, will, our own uh, leadership. We have to show people that we're serious about this change. We just have to do it by our sheer example, uh, as we'll talk about, I'm sure, in other parts of the discussion. I want to uh, leave the uh, enemies for just a moment. We'll come back to some of those a little bit later, but dip our toe into uh, part two of the book uh, where you discuss how we become the allies of change. And that starts with something I alluded to earlier, that reorientation, uh, that pulling versus uh, pushing. What does does that look like in, in practice? Yeah. So I like to start with the story of someone who comes across a tug of war going on. So you walk up to a tug of war and on one side, there are five people and they are from one of your competitors. On the other side is your boss, your leader, and he or she is alone. Let's say it's a he. He's getting pulled really hard. He is pulling as hard as he could with all of his heart. And you see this. And of course, if you have the physical ability to do this, are you going to go and help your leader or are you going to let your leader be humiliated? Well, I think everyone knows what they would do if if Mm. they have any sense of of loyalty at all. They would run up to their leader. They would help them pull. They would pull along with the leader. They may even yell to colleagues and others to come help, right? It's urgent, but also we want to win. We want to do the right thing for the organization they were in. We don't like, certainly don't like to be humiliated. And so whose idea was that? Mm -hmm. Whose idea was it? Was it The boss's idea to have everyone come and and help him? No, it was a situation that came up that obviously was our idea, right? It wasn't the boss's idea. So we go and we pull with them because we see them pulling. We see our leader pulling and we want to pull with them. Now, compare that to a scene that you walk up to and everyone in your organization is there. There are five people on the other side of the rope and your leader and his executive team 
are sitting around trying to decide who on the team is going to pull for our team. And so you may get chosen. And if you do get chosen and and, and then the executive team sits there and, and provides thoughtful criticism along the way, are you feeling the same way that you felt when you had this sense of purpose where you decided to pull along with the boss? I, I doubt it. I mean, I, mm. I can't imagine that you do. And this is the difference between pushing change onto people and pulling people to and through a change. It's a very different mindset that we have to have. One of the things that I say in the book pretty clearly is it's not about getting our people to change. It is about getting our people to want to change. Mm. And the difference between that, that sounds like one of those quirky management consultant sort of <laughs> things, but but it, but it's it's absolutely real. If our people, uh, if we get our people to change, that's compliance. It's mere compliance. If we get our people to want to change, that's lasting change because it comes from inside. But how do we do that? Well, we have to pull our people to and through the change. We have to make it their idea. And so to illustrate this, I talk about a guy named Daniel. Now, in the 1990s, the late 1990s, after we finally realized that this thing called the Internet was maybe going to take off, <laughs> it's hard to believe, right? We live in a day where there are Amazon Prime trucks every on every block, on every street, it seems. But 25 years ago, we didn't even know what this thing, the Internet, was. And once we realized that it was coming and might not be more than a fad, everyone was sort of announcing their internet strategy. You know, today we've announced our internet strategy. Sally Jenkins is young and hip and down with all the cool apps, and we put her in charge of the internet strategy we have developed. It was very top-down, and all kinds of companies, I kind of make fun of Circuit City and Borders Books, because they all had internet strategies. Mm. But most organizations did things that way. But this guy named Daniel, he had a small, regional, brick-and-mortar mortgage lending company. Uh, it was called Rock Financial. He's in the Midwest and he looks at this thing called the internet and he looks at it very differently. He sort of says, okay, it's either a threat or an opportunity. I've got to figure that out. I'm just a little brick and mortar mortgage guy, but we might be able to make something of this thing called the internet, but he doesn't push this onto his people. He goes about it a very different way. And, and I went back and found, because he was one of the winners at change, I went back and found how Daniel approached this and how he talked about it from some of his communications in 1998. Mm. He painted a, a great vision, a, a really a vivid picture of what, what this could be. So he's got this small regional brick and mortar mortgage company. And he says, hey, we could have people in 50 states, thousands of people in 50 states mm. if we do this. It could be great. And, and by the way, he hits on their competitive spirit. Somebody's going to do this. Whoever it is is going to win big. Mm. This is a wake-up call. So he's hitting on their competitive spirit. Then he gives them, uh, he shows them that he believes in them. We can do this. We are ahead in most other technologies. We we just have to fix this one thing, and, and, and we can do great things. Then he does something very different. He says, I'm in. I'm willing to spend as much money to make this happen as is possible. And I would even, if we thought it was the right thing to do, I'd even buy a, a local web development company and we could have them help us do this. Mm -hmm. Well, so a couple of things about this, this I'm in. First of all, I've never heard a boss say I'd spend as much money as, as possible, <laughs> right? Who says that? So that really says, I'm willing to get my hands dirty. I'm going to get involved on the inputs to, to be get better outcomes, which is an important point. But he also says, I would be willing to buy a local web development company. Two things about this. The thing is, these are people who sit across from their customers 
and sign mortgages and, and, and shake hands and this sort of thing. And he's talking about buying something called a, a web development company. He must be serious. <laughs> By his actions, he's showing that he's serious about this. But he also says, I would be willing to do XYZ, buy a local web development company. He doesn't say, oh, and last week I bought a local web development company. Mm. That would be push. It would be his idea. What we have to do is help our people internalize the idea, get it to be their idea. And it may not work out as well or as ex exactly as we envision it because we get our people involved. But we have to get our people involved and we have to get them to pull with us. Because if, if we push change onto people, they'll push back. They have cognitive dissonance. They're looking for a reason not to. But if we pull our people to and through the change, we're much more likely to get them to pull with us and pull us the rest of the way. It is the sort of the fulcrum. It's sort of the, mm. the, the difference maker in the whole equation of change. If we have our people pulling with us, they will pull us the rest of the way. Mm. If we have our people not with us, they will push back. Like I said, they may smile and nod, but inside they want to throw things at us. We have to approach this very differently. And Daniel understood this. By the way, Daniel's little brick and mortar regional mortgage company, well, we know it today as Quicken Loans. Mm -hmm. Quicken Loans recently surpassed Wells Fargo to be the number one mortgage lending company in America. It's got JD Power Awards coming out all the time and for customer satisfaction. And it's mm. regularly the one of the top 30 companies to work for, not in the top 100, the top 30. So if you want to win at change, it involves pulling. The winners at change understood that they had to pull their people to and through the change for a lasting change. And clearly this was success. This was has success written all over it. I want to uh, wrap up the conversation with regard to the enemies of change. A couple of them have to deal with communication. One talks about outdated communication and dealing with that. Another one talking about deciphering how to deal with different types of people when it comes to communicating change. Talk a bit about those. Yeah. So, you know, I have a friend who was in the auto industry in the late 70s, and he talks about how they had color-coded memos. He was an, an analyst. You know, things were very top-down. And mm -hmm. so if you got a green memo, it might be for somebody who got a new job. But if you got a blue memo, those things were gospel. They were from a vice president or above. You got a blue memo, you, you read it right away. And it was, you know, you went and talked to your colleagues about it and decided, oh, okay, well, this is what we're going to do because he said so, or she said so. So lots has changed since the 1970s. Mm -hmm. And one of them is technology. The, the very fact that our people can go on Glassdoor, they can go to Reuters, they can see what we are saying to everyone. Mm -hmm. It, we need to recognize that. We may have thought once upon a time that we could say one thing to one audience and one thing to another audience. Instead, uh, the best communicators in the world will tell you that communications is 90% action, 10% words. We have to understand this. And so we do need to communicate about 10 times as much as we normally do mm. during a change. So the normal communications pace and uh, rhythm has to be tenfold of what it normally is. But any action that is out of line with our communications, game over. If we mm -hmm. don't give the $1 fare to Fiji, if we don't do those sorts of things, then essentially our people are looking for a reason why not. They're looking for something that they can glom onto to not have to change. And so when we act incongruently with the change, we are essentially communicating that we're not serious. Whether we mean it or not, we have to come up with a way to act congruently with the change. 
rather than thinking that we can send this to our communications people and our HR people and our project management people and sort of be done with it. We have to embody the change. And then we have to understand our people. Some people may be all the way with us, high-fiving us because they saw this opportunity or, or threat before we did. But others, we call them the politically correct. They say nice things to our face, but they don't support us every day. Mm. And this can be because they are bad people. But for the most part, this is because they are trying to serve us in the, and the organization in the here and now. They have pressures on them to make the quarter, uh, do these sorts of things, and they don't want to let us down. And we have to work with the various different types of people that we come across. And I lay out about five different types in the book so that we can help them get to and through the change. I'll talk about the importance of, of various departments needing to be in unison, in, in sync with with one another, in other words, without losing what makes the change, this unified change, meaningful for them specifically. Yeah, so we we have this challenge that all of us face because no matter where we sit in our organization, we probably have something of a different role in the change. I talk about a company that had a problem with its technology, which was causing its operations to slow down, which meant that its products weren't getting to to its customers fast enough, which meant it was losing market share. And so they did all this research and whatnot and found that this was sort of the problem. Uh, a consultant comes in and says, can you explain to me why we need to change? And they look at him like, what are you talking about? Didn't you do your research before you came into this meeting? The consultant says, no, I read all the research, but can you write down in five words or less why we need to change? And what comes back is a list of various different things. We have a technology problem tech stack problem, operations issues, market share issue. We have a customer support issue. We're not helping our customers as well as we can. If they all have to say it in five words or less, <laughs> they come up with something very different across the board. And it's very eye-opening to the team that they don't have a consistent why. The how is different across the different parts of the organization. Mm. But the why must be the same. Again, our people are looking for clinks in the armor. And if a, a salesperson who thinks it's a, who's been told it's a market share issue or, or a customer delivery issue is having lunch with a someone in IT who says, no, it's a tech stack issue. Well, then they sit there and go, well, these leaders don't even know what in the world we're doing this for. Mm. Right? We have to be aligned on this. And we don't even realize that we're not aligned. And we're naturally not aligned because we come at it from different places. So we have to get our why right. Um, think of uh, Beethoven's Fifth. So if you don't know Beethoven's Fifth right off the hand, I'm not going to try and hum it. <laughs> it's got four keynotes. Everyone, everyone in our organization can do those four keynotes. Go out and listen to it. You'll understand what I mean. And it plays those four keynotes many different ways, many different times, from many different angles, by many different uh, pieces of, uh, of the orchestra. They play those notes constantly. But occasionally they go off into their own little riffs because we all have to share for our people what it is that we need to do, the how. But the why needs to say the same across all of us. So go, go listen to Beethoven's Fifth. You'll hear the four notes and you'll say, ah, I know that song or that piece of music. And you'll say, ah, okay, that's what he's talking about. We have to be aligned on that. But first, we have to understand that we are naturally probably not aligned on why we need to change. We will say it very differently if we don't figure out what to say and how to say it together in a, in a consistent way. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, again, we can lose a change. 
Very well said. That was one of my favorite chapters in the book. I love the orchestra metaphor for driving that to point home. Having been someone who studied music in college, especially, I think yeah. that probably lent itself to that, to my liking that so much. Uh, well, I got a couple of questions I want to ask you, Al, not directly related to the book. Uh, before I do that, anything else from the book you want to make sure we know or walk away with? Well, the best way to be good and get our muscle memory good at change is to be a change agent to model change or model an openness to change every day as a leader. So if we have moonbeam people with great ideas, some of them work, some of them don't, if we poo-poo them constantly and sort of laugh at them or aren't open to the idea of new ideas, the idea of things that might change, we'll discourage people from bringing them to us. But also once we need to change, we look like we just got religion. <laughs> and if we're the kind of CEO who's, who people see as, wow, he listened to that guy who had that strange idea. He's open to new things. And now we're in a change six months later. It's that person versus someone who just sort of laughs off uh, new ideas. It, it makes a big difference. People are watching us every day. They watch everything we do. And so being open to change and modeling an openness to change Every day will help us when we get to the real tough change that we have to do, because people will then see how serious we are. Uh, talk about as someone who has been a part of some some very successful companies and then consulted many uh, successful companies. Your experience with companies who have a reading as part of the culture, where that's really in, embedded into the employee ranks. Yeah, you know it's it's interesting the the places where I have worked where it is a reading culture. It, it, it begets a culture where people want to help each other. When you're in an organization and people say, ah, what you're saying is interesting. I read this book recently where such and such, such and such. And, and so they're sharing. And every once in a while, you go and pick up that book. I, I was at Travelocity and I think I read probably 10 books because I was surrounded by other people who were who were also a book readers and they naturally brought me great ideas. We did a lot of our work around customer championship, this idea that we had there, came from good to great. And someone had recommended that book to me. And then, of course, I recommended it to others. We had a book called Extraordinary Guarantees that I personally bought 10 copies of and handed out to everyone else on the executive team at Travelocity mm. when we were thinking about customer championship and this idea of a guarantee. And so uh, just the idea of sharing what you learn, you end up taking it the right way. I mean, I, I think the first time uh, I've, I've offered a book or suggested a book to somebody, they're like, okay, you are you a snob? Because you read all the time. But you eventually get this idea that, ah, everyone is sort of trying new things, open to new ideas. It sort of begets an openness. Mm. I've been part of other organizations where you know, the boss says to read it, so you read it. And, and you know, I've, I was part of one organization where the boss would said, you know, here's what's on my bedside table. And then you'd see people, you know, in their at their offices or their cubicles, and they'd have the book, and they'd basically be fanning themselves with it to show everyone <laughs> that they were they had the book too. That's not the kind of culture that you want. You want mm. people amongst each other talking about the books that they've read. Because it, it builds each on each other. We build on each other when we're part of a culture yeah. like that. You mentioned earlier buying multiple copies of a particular book. There's a book coming out next year called Read to Lead, which I think you <laughs> also should buy multiple copies of. Uh, <laughs> Well, finally, I want to ask, Al, uh, as you look ahead to the remainder uh, of this year, what's ahead for you and your team uh, that you're excited about and, and able to, to share? 
Yeah, so I'm spending a lot of time continuing to research this idea of, of change and this way that we need to really go about change mm. um, differently from the way most people sort of see it, talk about it, teach it. And I'm doing speaking, and uh, obviously these days it's virtual, and, and leadership, change in leadership, because if you can lead change, you can really lead anything. Mm. Um, so the uh, working on a, um, a potential online course, writing and teaching locally in Texas. Um, so you know, where I can help people grow and be better at this thing called leading change. I want to be able to do it however I can. Well, Al's book again is called Change the Management, Why We as Leaders Must Change for the Change to Last. Al, again, thank you for, for being a part of the show. Appreciate you coming on and giving a, a, of your time so freely. Oh, and I appreciate you having me. I, I really enjoy your podcast. If you think you'd like to dive into this book, start with that free chapter I talked about. Al's made that possible at his website. I've linked to Al's website from my own. The show notes page is where you can find that link. And that is readtoleadpodcast.com slash 337 for episode 337. In addition to links to other resources, you'll also find a summary of today's episode there. One more time, that's readtoleadpodcast.com com slash three three seven. My thanks once again to Scott Mater at the Inspired Stewardship Podcast for introducing Al and I. If you have comments, questions, suggestions, feedback, anything like that for the podcast, you can send that to me directly, Jeff at readtoleadpodcast.com. That's also the best address if you're interested in bringing me in to help work on a project. That email address again is jeff at readtoleadpodcast.com. Well, that does it for another week. I look forward to seeing you next time. Until then, remember, as always, leaders read and readers lead. Ladies, at Essential Health, you're not just a patient. You're a partner in your healthcare journey. We'll get to the heart of your health questions, even the ones you're embarrassed to ask. We'll find solutions to fit your unique needs and lifestyle, because here, we're in it together. Feel confident in your care and in yourself. Schedule a women's health appointment with an Essentia Health provider today. Click the banner to learn more.